The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. You may want to make a distinction um, between Judas or Judah Maccabee on the one hand and Jonathan Maccabee on the other. in terms of their skills or, or their particular strengths as leaders uh, at this period in the history of the, um, of the Jews, uh, Judah primarily as a military figure, Jonathan primarily as a diplomatic um, uh, person. You don't want to uh, distinguish too sharply. It isn't as though Judah's uh, had no Uh, diplomatic um, uh, negotiations to make in the course of his uh, leadership and it isn't as though Jonathan wasn't involved in in some military ventures but um, if you want to distinguish their particular strengths uh, it it comes at that point it is also very important to keep in mind that um, when Jonathan makes this deal with the uh, Seleucid claimant to the throne to support him if Jonathan was given the high priesthood. Uh, As I was mentioning last time, that probably would have been perceived as uh, betrayal of the very principles that had been feeding this movement of the Hasidim. I mean, there can can be little doubt that at the time of the revolt and for some time after that, it was primarily the support of these Hasidim, these, this faithful group uh, that kept uh, things going. There is a theory which is generally accepted by scholars today. Um, not everyone agrees with it because we don't have any really hard facts about it, but it is the most likely explanation of the facts that it was in fact during uh, Jonathan's uh, rule that the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, separated from uh, the people of Israel generally and uh, went into that area in Qumran near the Dead Sea and that was the origin of this community. Uh, in other words, in opposition to what they may have uh, perceived as, a, as, an, as an abandonment of the truth <clears throat> because for these people uh, the business about the legitimate high priesthood uh, as belonging to the Zadokite line was a crucial thing and Jonathan not belonging to the line of Zadok <clears throat> would have been perceived as an apostate and uh, the people as a whole might have been perceived as apostates by this group <clears throat> who then uh, separate, maybe they feel that by now the temple is no longer a place where where God really identifies himself with his people, and so they make their own community, and they felt uh, that they they were the true Israel. 
So uh, this is one of the reasons why this period is, is really very important for us to understand the uh, development of the Jewish people and uh, some of the feelings and convictions and problems and controversies that become characteristic of the first century and which are usually beneath the surface of the New Testament text. I say beneath the surface because the New Testament never explicitly talks about the people of Qumran or the Essenes, if indeed the Essenes were the people in Qumran, uh, some you know, unconventional types, if you will. So, but even though there is no explicit mention of, of these people, uh, there are many things in the New Testament, the Gospels particularly, that can be much more clearly understood against the background of what was going on. And um, we'll see a, a few examples of that as, as we move on. When Jonathan is killed and uh, another brother, Simon or Simeon, uh, takes over, <coughs> he is able to reap the uh, benefits of what had, in the political sense anyway, of what had been done uh, by Judas and Jonathan. And eventually, in the year 142, uh, he he's able to uh, gain a, um, a recognition of the political independence of the Jewish state from the Seleucid Empire. Now, to be fair, one has to recognize that at this point in the history of the Seleucid Empire, uh, there were a lot of problems, not the least of which uh, was having to deal with uh, op uh, opponents who were coming from the east and which were uh, draining the, the forces both uh, from an economic point of view and, and just in terms of, uh, of various fronts to have to uh, defend. And uh, it was in connection with that, in, in the context of that sort of development among the Seleucids, that uh, the Jews were able to regain their independence. And at that point, we talk about the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty. Um, you know, we, we use the term dynasty when you have a uh, succession of um, rulers uh, who belong to the same family, basically. Uh, the term Hasmonean, some people say Hasmonean, immaterial, uh, apparently comes from a um, uh, one great grandfather father or something of, of um, the, uh, the Maccabean brothers uh, who was uh, named Heshmon, as I remember. And uh, you need to keep in mind that sometimes in your reading of, of books that deal with this period, the terms Maccabeans and Hasmoneans are interchanged. I myself tend to restrict the term Maccabee, Maccabeans just for this group of, of the three brothers who were involved in the uh, Maccabean revolt and then the establishment of a dynasty. And then I, uh, I reserve the term Hasmonean to, deal, to, uh, to, to talk about the period of independence in which uh, these people were, were rulers, the Hasmonean line. And so we move on to uh, that period <coughs> after the death of um, uh, Simon. We have uh, the rule of John Hyrcanus, uh, known as John Hyrcanus I, because later on there's a, a Hyrcanus II. Uh, John was um, a very, very successful military leader. 
there were a number of conquests, still in Palestine, by the way. I'm sorry, I somehow I left my maps somewhere. But um, during, during the period up to John, uh, particularly the, the work of Judas and Jonathan and Simeon, um, you need to keep in mind, <coughs> say this is uh, Palestine, it's very easy <coughs> to draw. The Jewish state was basically something very small like this. And when, when I speak about the conquests of, of Judas or Jonathan, whatever, what it means is that there may be pockets uh, one over from, from the rule of the Seleucids and one here and one there and so on. Uh, when uh, John Hyrcanus comes to, uh, to this position of leadership, he's, ab he's able to expand that so that by the end of his reign, uh, the Jews more or less dominate just about all of this. It's not always easy to be very precise about where the uh, boundaries uh, might have fallen, but uh, uh, particularly interesting among these conquests is the fact that um, John also went down to this area, uh, the area of the um, um, Edomites. Actually, um, you, if, if uh, you have studied a little bit about Old Testament history, you may remember that the nation of Edom was on the eastern side of, the, um, of, of this area. But um, there were some further developments, and these people eventually settled in the south of, uh, south of Judah, of Judea. And they came to be known as Edomians. John conquered these people and then uh, forced them to become Jews. In other words, the, the males were supposed to be circumcised. They were supposed to be subject to some of the regulations uh, among, the, uh, among the Jews. And uh, there's a certain irony about this particular event because from one point of view, you might look at it as um, politically this is a great victory and, and uh, it strengthens the, the power of, of the uh, Jews. But... Um, the problem is that um, if it had not been for this conquest, maybe Herod the Great might have never uh, ruled uh, Palestine. Uh, Herod was an Edomian. Uh, because he was an, Edo an Edomian, he was, quote-unquote, a Jew, because Judaism was forced upon them. And uh, that was one of his uh, cards, if you will, to be able to uh, gain uh, leadership, uh, as we shall see uh, presently. Another important um, detail about the reign of, uh, actually reign is not the word yet because he didn't call himself a king, but uh, during his rule is that it is during this period that for the first time we have a historical reference to Pharisees and Sadducees. Now I'm not saying that the Pharisees and Sadducees originated during this period. They probably had been around for a while but the first historical notice of them. Well, it's Josephus, actually, a, a very famous Jewish historian who wrote in the second half of the first century A.D. and um, who uh, wrote a number of works. Uh, one was called The Antiquities of the Jews. Another one was called The Jewish War. And in both of these uh, works, he deals with what we call the intertestamental period. 
and uh, it is in relating uh, certain events during the reign of, uh, during the rule of uh, Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus, that he makes reference to uh, a, a, an apparent division between Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, uh, again, we're not terribly sure about some of these things, and you need to be aware of uh, the ambiguities of the historical data. And uh, what I give you in this class, you need to regard more, more or less as a consensus among scholars. But uh, some of this, you just cannot nail it down in terms of real proof. And as a result, you have a number of, of scholars who have different theories about it. But um, if, in fact, we may think of the Hasidim as a um, loose, loosely organized kind of movement of people who wanted to preserve the, um, uh, the Jewish tradition, it may be possible to understand the developments of some of the later groups, at least in part, as uh, somehow being related to this particular um, uh, group. What the many scholars think may have happened is that the Essenes, both the Essenes and the Pharisees, have had their historical origin in the group of the Hasidim. Uh, the theory, and it is a theory, uh, goes something like this. First, you have this loosely organized uh, movement. Uh, they probably don't have a leader as such. I mean, you, you don't think of a, uh, of a um, group that has officers and they keep a membership list and their dues and so on. It's not quite like that. Um, but possibly at the time of Jonathan, when Jonathan takes uh, on this uh, high priesthood illegally, the Essenes separate from the people of Israel and they form the, uh, the community at Qumran. Now, I'm using the term Essenes here. That's, that's also a little bit controversial. Uh, it may be that the term Essenes is, is kind of a broad term to uh, describe any of the nonconformist groups, and there were many of them probably in Palestine. Um, and, and there are a number of scholars who think it's wrong to describe the people in Qumran as Essenes, but the majority think that that's okay. Uh, in any case, um, without committing ourselves as to who exactly, what exactly the term Essene means, uh, we may view them, or at least the people of Qumran, as uh, withdrawing from this group within the mainstream of Judaism, separating forming a new nation as far as they were concerned. The people who were left behind, who were also more or less committed to this uh, way of life, this tradition, but who felt that, uh, and, and, and who therefore were also unhappy with what was happening in the leadership of, of the people, the, you know, Jonathan and the later uh, Hasmonean uh, leaders, but who nevertheless felt we've got to stay here and uh, provide some sort of uh, leadership from the other side and try to resist uh, what is happening 
uh, out, of, out of the people who felt that way, the Pharisees may have been formed. We're not sure. We just don't have any uh, document or other kind of information that gives us explicit information about that. But um, the Pharisees, we don't even know for sure what the, what the term means. If you uh, look it up in the Bible dictionary, they will probably tell you that it comes from a word that means separated, possibly. It's not certain. And, and maybe they, they view themselves as separate from the mainstream while still remaining within the, uh, the community. But uh, that may be, it, it, it is a reasonable explanation of uh, how some of these groups develop. The Sadducees, that's something altogether different. It appears that the Sadducees uh, formed a more or less um, aristocratic group closely linked with the priesthood. These people, now that can, this can be a little confusing and, and give me a chance to explain, uh, were rather conservative. Now, at first sight, you may wonder, now, conservative, I thought the Sadducees didn't believe in angels or resurrection, and the Pharisees did. So in what sense are they conservative? Well, it's kind of interesting. The Sadducees could be viewed as conservative in a political sense, uh, namely that they supported the status quo, namely of these Hasmonean leaders, you see. They, they were, you see, if, if, the, um, if John Hyrcanus, let's say, is a high priest, because he, all of these were high priests, all these leaders became high priests, then he controls the, the priesthood. Not every priest necessarily, but, but certainly the chief priests and the ones who were really you know, in the in-group, if you will, uh, would have been part of this whole uh, scheme. And, and that's what I mean by some sort of an aristocracy. Uh, they were the people in power. And so they were happy with the status quo. In that sense, they were conservative. Even in a religious sense, you, you could call them conservative, uh, and this is what I mean by that. The Sadducees, apparently, if our information is correct, I'm going to qualify almost everything I say, um, apparently believed that uh, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and only the Pentateuch, was really the Bible, if you will. Whereas the Pharisees also accepted the prophets and, and the writings and so on, uh, the other books of the Bible, of what we call the Bible now, as also inspired. Now, you see, from the point of the Sadducees, that was a more conserv conservative type of thing. You see, the, you know, we believe in the Torah, and you Pharisees are adding books to the Bible kind of thing. Moreover, and by the way, that is related to the business of resurrection and angels, because in the... Uh, in the, in the Pentateuch, you know, it's very difficult to find uh, any references to angels as such or, or resurrection. It's for, from some of the later books that, that you have references that could be understood uh, better in that way. Uh, the other factor, which I will be spending more time on in a couple of weeks, has to do with the fact that the Pharisees developed a tradition that came to be known eventually as the oral, as the oral Torah. That is, the law that was not written down but was orally transmitted. 
and the, and the Sadducees would have perceived that, you see, also as some kind of innovation. The Sadducees would have perceived that as an innovation. So for these reasons, you could think of the, of the Sadducees as more conservative than the Pharisees, even though today when we think you know, theologically, when we think of somebody who denies the resurrection, he's a liberal, you see, not conservative. Things get very confusing with, with terms like conservative and, and liberal and so on. But that's part of what's going on here. Um, I have a, just a little reference to this fellow Aristobulus. He was uh, Hyrcanus's son, and uh, when Hyrcanus died, uh, he became a ruler, but he didn't last very long, only about a year. And the only reason I'm mentioning him here is that apparently he was the first one who actually took upon himself the title of king. And, um, and for that reason, maybe he's worth uh, remembering. But then we have a period of uh, repression that eventually leads to a civil war. And uh, the main culprit here is this fellow Alexander Janius. Alexander Janius. Here you have another example of somebody taking on a Greek name, Alexander, of all names, you know. Alexander, what does that tell you about his own commitments and, and uh, you know, where he saw himself, that kind of thing? He unfortunately succeeded in um, getting uh, the Jewish population very upset. Uh, he was a, um, an obstinate type of uh, ruler. Uh, there is the one story about his um, giving a speech and uh, he was pelted by the Jews with Jaffa oranges or something, I don't know. I guess there weren't oranges there yet because the, you couldn't cultivate in that area. But anyway, Josephus says that they threw citrus fruit at him. And uh, he was so mad that he uh, crucified a large number of, uh, of Jewish leaders. And of course, that didn't exactly endear him uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the people. Also, uh, during his, and, and in particular the Pharisees, um, and it just caused unbelievable uh, troubles uh, for him, for the development of, uh, of the nation. When he died, his wife, his widow, uh, Salome, uh, became the ruler. And uh, she turned out to be an excellent ruler. Uh, she had a relatively long period of uh, rule. And uh, it's interesting that uh, later on, people would look at this period under her rule as a period of uh, prosperity and peace, you know, the good old days. Uh, part of the reason, uh, again, this is an anecdote that Josephus tells, uh, maybe it's true, that uh, Alexander Janius, uh, in his dying bed, said to his wife, when I die, your first order of business, make peace with the Pharisees. They're the ones who caused me all this trouble. And sure enough, uh, she tried to uh, uh, reconcile with the Pharisees. The Pharisees became more, much more influential uh, at this point. And uh, that probably had something to do with the relative calm uh, during her rule. Unfortunately, upon her death, there were two sons. Uh, you have their names here, Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. Uh, Hyrcanus was the uh, eldest, and so by right he should have been the ruler. 
but he was not a particularly strong man. I'm talking about his character. And uh, he was challenged by his son. And uh, the, the story is not a very pleasant story for, for the next number of years. And I'm not going to go over it. Loza gives you all the details you need to know about. And uh, you should read that carefully. Uh, eventually, what really happened was that the, uh, the Jewish state weakened considerably precisely at the time when the Romans uh, were taking over that whole area. So uh, in the year 63 BC, the year 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey, who had been uh, in, in the northern part of Palestine, uh, comes in and basically without resistance and uh, imposes uh, the, the um, authority of the Roman Empire upon this uh, little state, which means that the period of, of political independence enjoyed by the Jews lasted for less than a century, from the year 142 to the year 63. Um, the Romans, whenever they conquered uh, any group, well, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, there, there are exceptions, but uh, frequently, they would try to come, come up with some sort of arrangement whereby the people would have a, a degree of self-rule, but always within, sub, uh, within the context of subjection to the Romans. And uh, as Pompey leaves, um, he, he leaves a particular arrangement, which again, Loza gives you the details, and. Uh, it, it was a very unstable thing. Uh, you know, these two brothers were still involved in, in, in that situation. And uh, things just got, uh, you know, went from bad to worse. And that prepared the way for Herod uh, to take over. And um, we'll move into that in just a minute. But let me pause at this point and uh, see any questions that you might have uh, during this period. I know we've covered a lot of ground maybe a lot of names that you haven't heard before. Uh, but if you have any questions right now, I'll be happy to, um, to try to deal with them. Yeah? Alexander's what? Um, do you remember where that is in, uh, in Loza? <coughs> 32? Well, um, let me uh, just double check something here. Um, are you assuming that Alexander Janius was Salome's son? You could, you, yeah, all right. Yeah, it's, it's not very clearly stated. If you go to the end of the book, in fact, it's the page next to the last page, you have a um, chart of the uh, genealogical connections. And you can see there that Alexander Janius also was a son of John Hyrcanus. Uh, so um, he really married 
his wife's widow. His brother's widow. I've never been very good at genealogies, as you can see. I can't even keep my wife's family straight. How can I? So, so this wouldn't be a problem for a Jew. But uh, actually, you do touch on the point that there are a lot of, you know, strange things going on sometimes in these families. And, uh, uh, you know, some Jews wouldn't have minded. Others would have been very upset. It's... Yeah. yeah, well, th there is indeed a, a regulation in the Old Testament that uh, that's, that's what needs to be done. But in the actual outworkings, you mustn't think that the Jews always fall. I, let, me, let me put it differently. It was not out of altruistic motives. You know, Jan is really concerned about his brother's uh, descendants that that's why he married Salome uh, you know out of altruistic motives you know Jan is really concerned about his brother's uh, descendants that that's why he married Salome uh, you know correct correct that's right yeah and I'm not even sure frankly whether whether he would have been the one in line to marry her. I, I don't know enough about the, uh, yeah. So they were all, um, they were high priests. Yes. They were on the set, they were uh, Okay. Um, um, it's a little difficult to, uh, you should not, it's probably a good idea not to equate absolutely high priest and Sadducee. But uh, the, the, the party of the Sadducees, for most of the history, was tied to the high priest and the chief priests and many other priests, although not necessarily all of them. And yeah, I think for all practical purposes you can equate them, but it's probably a good idea to keep those two ideas as, as distinct ideas. I wish that I could give you, you know, some good information about that. And uh, one of the debates that scholars right now are involved in when they try to understand the history of that period, and, and for that matter of any period, uh, is precisely the issue that you're bringing up. What, you know, most of the people, what are they really doing? And, and the truth is that most of the time we don't know because everything that has survived or almost everything that has survived, kind of represents a rather restricted area of any population. 
the, uh, the majority of, uh, of the people, not just in Palestine, but in the Roman Empire generally, they normally had no one to speak for them. I mean, if, if Josephus sits down, he is one of the intelligentsia. And, and uh, he does not pay that much attention to what others were, were uh, saying. Uh, we were very fortunate, of course, at the end of the last century, we'll talk about that in a different context, when uh, all these papyri were discovered. And uh, the, the papyri were, you know, day-to-day -day documents. And uh, we get a glimpse of the common folk in a way that we didn't before. Uh, with uh, there are some other archaeological discoveries and, and other kinds of techniques that historians use uh, to try to get a sense for that. Um, you know, the in in the rabbinic literature, the uh, the people as a whole as, are referred to as the Amhaarits, the the people of the land, with somewhat of a negative tinge because these people were just not didn't really know what was going on very much, and. Um, I suspect, can't prove it, but I suspect that it might be comparable to what you find, you might find even today in a Western uh, society where people who are not right in the mainstream of things, they may have their opinions, they tend to be more conservative in their lifestyle, but they do not always have really firm convictions about these things. It's just that that's the way they've always done things or whatever. And um, as I say, it'd be, it'd be great if we had some means of finding out exactly what was going on among some of the broader sections of the population. Maybe another way of addressing the same question. Alexander Janais is coming out of prison, therefore is unfit to be off high priest by law. He marries his brother's wife and needs nobody to marry her because she has an heir, which is another violation of law. But he manages to maintain the office. Is this a sign of apathy among the majority of not necessarily. They may have been really upset about it, but what can they do? You know, th these are people who are truly uh, disenfranchised in the sense that they have no political power a as a rule. Yeah, you, you do not have a unified government. I'm not saying that they would have been able to resist anyway, but it just made them easy pickings for the Romans. Mm -hmm. 44? Loza himself would say that, that there, that's an error in Mark himself. Loza would not be an evangelical in our sense of the term. And there are two or three portions in the book where, where his view of scripture kind of shows up. I, I may say a little bit about that. We're not yet to, to the period of the Herodians, but I'll, I'll remind me if I, if I fail to mention it. Yeah. What is the name? Uh, that is the uh, Hebrew name, Yana. Can't recall right up that. Huh? No. Well, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. 
I can remember. Yeah. Jonathan. Jonathan? Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the, the importance given to the land is very much an Old Testament motif. I mean, the land, you, you cannot belong to God if you don't belong to the land. Uh, when, um, when David is um, being persecuted and he makes that comment, you know, they, they have cast me out of the land and say, serve other gods, because it's assumed that you serve God in this land, you serve other gods in, you know, anywhere else. But but the, your initial comment is still true. There, is a, there was a tendency toward secularization, uh, at least among the rulers and many of the people who, for one reason or another, would have supported them. And uh, that's why I think it is fair. Some people don't like to, uh, to uh, admit this, but I think it is fair to say that with the Hasmonean rule, uh, you have a, a gradual... Um, abandonment of the very principles that gave rise to the revolt in the first place. Um, how far it went, I don't think, I think it, it would be uh, a little bit too much, I think, to think that someone like Alexander or some of the other rulers would have um, consciously said, oh no, I, I abandoned Judaism. They probably saw themselves as, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Jew, I still, you know, do this and do that and the other. But uh, the influence of, of, of Greek culture, which um, was a very powerful uh, factor in, uh, in the development of the, um, of the Middle East, was clearly affecting their whole way of life. Yeah, I don't think we have any explicit references to uh, Simon as Messiah, or Judas for that matter. And uh, there is some evidence that among the Jewish people, uh, the whole conception of Messiahship tended to be viewed in more than one way. And one of the ways in which it was looked at was primarily in terms of this, you know, the, the son of David who conquers. And so the military associations of that uh, in the light of, you know, we do not have political freedom, we are being repressed, um, at least among some of the Jews, messiahship had more and more of those connotations. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there would have been some groups that either at the time of the Maccabean revolt itself, or maybe later on as they look back with some, you know, romanticism or whatever, uh, may have viewed that as some sort of messianic 
manifestation. But uh, we don't have, to the best of my recollection, we don't have anything really specific or, or explicit about that. The uh, technical term the term sinners um, was a way of uh, labeling people who were viewed uh, to be outside of the pale of the covenant. So it would be applied, I think, primarily to Gentiles. It would be applied to the publicans who were perceived as having apostatized, really. Uh, I don't think that the Amharits would have been put quite in that category. Um, the, uh, the people of the land were people who, you know, they, they need to be brought along, but not necessarily that they were outside of, of God's covenant. Herod the Great. Um, what, uh, what I'm doing here, when I say the last Asmonians, um, simply again to, to help you keep in mind that after Pompey comes in, and that really does mark the end of independence, but from that point, 63 BC, until Herod the king actually takes over, you do have a period of a couple of decades, almost uh, two decades anyway, uh, where there's turmoil, there's, uh, you know, calm for a little while, then some more turmoil. And um, you have this new character showing up, Antigonus, who also challenges uh, Hyrcanus II. And again, it gets a little complicated, and I don't think you need to uh, know the details of that. Have, do read Losa carefully, have a, a, you know, reasonably clear idea of what's happening. Uh, but I'm not going to be asking for, you know, really detailed uh, uh, items about um, uh, the, the development of, of this period. What uh, matters is <clears throat> that, as I mentioned before, uh, this fellow Herod had, uh, was an Edomian. His father, by the name of Antipater, had been given a position of authority, of authority uh, earlier than this period, and um, as a result of that, Herod was also uh, given uh, some political uh, power, particularly up in Galilee. This is during the time of Hyrcanus and so on. As the situation deteriorates, uh, Herod has been gaining more and more strength as a leader and, and uh, some uh, support uh, from people and so on, and he decides that maybe he's the one who can finally uh, take charge. So he goes to Rome and uh, he makes a deal basically with the Romans. And what it amounted to was the Romans said, okay, I'll tell you what, if you are able, we'll tell you what, uh, Herod, if you're able to um, go there, uh, put down all this rebellion and, and uh, mess that's going on, and you can establish your authority, then we will acknowledge you as king of the Jews. Now, king, of course, implies self-rule. And, and here's where the connection I made before comes in. Uh, for, for Herod to be king of the Jews, he had to be a Jew, which he was formally, 
uh, although you mustn't think that his religious commitments uh, necessarily matched the name. But uh, that's kind of the background, and he is able to do that, and um, becomes, uh, actually, he, after he comes uh, to Palestine and begins to um, fight, um, he's able to gain some grants about the year 40, but it isn't until the year 37, the year 37, that he actually uh, is fully established as king of the Jews. His strengths, well, Herod, one has to recognize, has a, was a very, very fine administrator. He knew how to govern in terms of uh, administrative skills, organization, that kind of thing. And uh, from that point of view, he was able at a fairly early point to um, create a structure that had stability. Another fine point in, in his uh, character was his interest in the arts. He was a patron of the arts. In other words, he gave a lot of support, uh, particularly to, uh, to building projects. He uh, really uh, produced uh, and supported some magnificent uh, building projects. Um, one of the most impressive of all was the building of the port of Caesarea on the coast uh, around here, which eventually became the center of, this is where the, uh, the king uh, would reside uh, later, and, and later and the governors uh, later, on, later on. And uh, only in the past 10 or 15 years have archaeologists, and particularly underwater archaeologists, uh, really appreciated the magnitude of this particular project. The, uh, the difficulties in, in building what had to be built underwater and everything else to create a port uh, is really very, uh, quite astonishing. Um, the fortress of Masada, you've probably seen pictures uh, you know, of that tremendous uh, mountainous rock, and, and you have almost a city built on top of that. Uh, the Herodian, a uh, cone-shaped uh, structure, um, uh, uh, well, there's also almost like a city inside of that near Bethlehem. And most of all, of course, the, the temple, the, uh, the rebuilding of the temple, um, which became a source of pride for every Jew. I mean, this was internationally known as one of the wonders of the, uh, of the ancient world. But alongside his strengths, there were some weaknesses as well. Uh, Herod was uh, really... You know, the typical egotistical type who couldn't, just couldn't uh, put his priorities the way that they ought to be. And uh, it, it becomes clear as, uh, as time progresses that his uh, emotional stability was not particularly anything to write home about. Um, he fell in love with a, a woman named Mariamne, or Mariamne. <coughs> uh, traditionally, you, you will find this name spelled with an N, Mariamne, but uh, uh, Mariamne, that is with two M's, is probably the more accurate, and, and some people use that other spelling. Mariamne happened to be 
a Hasmonean. Uh, and uh, this is part of, of uh, Herod's good sense. He realized that the Jews would not trust him, but by marrying into the Hasmonean family, he could get a little bit of support and sympathy. But the truth is that he was crazy about this woman. And he was also a very jealous man. Uh, the story is told of the time when, um, when Herod had to uh, travel and meet um, Octavian. This is at the time when there were some uh, uh, struggles within the, within the Roman Empire, Mark Anthony, Octavian, and so on. And um, Herod feared for his life, and, and he thought there was a possibility he might not come back alive. And he said, if I die, I don't want anybody to have Mariamne. So he instructed Joseph, a certain Joseph who happened to be Mariamne's uncle, but also her guardian of sorts. And he said to him, look, if I don't return, you're to have her executed. Now, see, Mariamne and Herod didn't really get along all that well to begin with. And Joseph, who was the type of guy who didn't like contention in the home and so on, wanted to patch things up, and he said to Mary Amney, you know, just to show you how much Herod loves you, he told me to kill you if he dies. Well, Mary Amney wasn't really impressed with this show of uh, affection, and uh, when Herod came back, I mean, she really let him have it. At that point, Herod's mind begins to, well, wait a minute here, Joseph, you know, would not have said that to Mary Amney unless there was some unhealthy relationship there. So he had Joseph executed. And uh, then he began to kill a few of his own sons whom he feared uh, might uh, take over his, um, his own reign. It's not surprising that the Emperor Augustus eventually made a little comment about uh, it's, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Uh, the words for pig and son in Greek sound a little bit alike, and the point is that being a Jew, uh, he couldn't eat pork, so the pigs were safe. But if you were a son of Herod, uh, you were in trouble, possibly. Well, please do uh, review some of the stuff we've been talking about yesterday and today. Look carefully over the syllabus and your reading uh, through Monday, and if you have any questions on Monday, we'll take some time in class to go over them.